alchemists, emerging from a tradition of chemistry and metallurgy, bent the physical laws to their wills, which more often than not were financially inspired. Alchemists could puncture the skins of dimensions and harvest the coals from hell. A chancy, though profitable, business model. Of all the brooks of magic, hexagy was but a runnel, a shallow rill that contained a multitude of practical, if not awe-inspiring, functions. The hex caster, whose power lay in the drawing of complex rosettes, could ease ailments, improve environments, facilitate studies, and assist births. Wizardry and necromancy, whose practitioners were once considered magic's upper crust, had since the conclusion of the Meridian War been regulated into obscurity. Wizards had been reduced to stage entertainers who pulled strings of scarves out of a variety of orifices, and necromancers had reinvented themselves as behaviorists who treated the ill-tempered pets of the aristocracy. The students of those who'd once animated armies of fallen soldiers now found themselves tasked with discouraging Miss Mittens from eating and subsequently coughing up the houseplants. In the boom years that followed the war, alchemy had ascended as the dominant form of magic because of its industrial applications. The lights of the nations were fired by fuel pooled from the alchemists' halos. Several of the alchemists had more money than the monarchy, which was a growing point of royal concern. But while alchemists rose to prominence, and wizards and necromancers had been all but mandated from existence, hexcasters had been allowed to continue to practice because they were benign and increasingly irrelevant, as they were bit by bit being obsoleted by technological innovation. The call for practising hexagists, which had once been considered a craft as prestigious as luthery, had been answered by a host of emerging gimmicks and medicaments. The financiers and bourgeois of the capital city of Burberton increasingly looked to the pioneering efforts of engineers, who had already supplied the city with the miracles of motorised jaunts, electric lights, vox boxes, and hyaline receivers that piped news, melodramas, and music into the nation's parlours and cabs. The only professions that still commonly employed the delineation of charmed patterns were midwives and dentists, and even they were beginning to swap out their hexes for opiates. The essential trouble with hexagy was this. The art was unforgiving and often ineffectual. A hex, whether done in the air, chalked on a headboard, or carved upon the soft earth, was as impotent as a scrawl if a circlet bulged from its focus, or a single cross leaned one degree this way or that. Even a perfectly traced hex could fail for any number of reasons. An intolerant environment, an unsettled practitioner, or a disinclined subject. To say nothing of interference from other wards, jinxes and spells. So, when Isolde Wilby drew before the charging woodland golem a knot of circles and chevrons that coloured the air like a sunbeam, she was hardly surprised to see the mandrake dispel her hex of tranquillity like a runner snapping the ribbon of a finish line. She would have been trampled by the enchanted creature 
had she not thrown herself over the ottoman that supported a carefully squared stack of letters. She had been studiously ignoring them for weeks, even as her husband found increasingly inconvenient locations to place her looming obligations.